By the way, the news meltdown is a reminder. Remember the previous obsession uh, and once in future, I should say, obsession, mm. right? Donald Trump. We forgot about that guy. Amazingly, finally something not <laughs> Donald Trump this week. Finally, some uh, news. It takes a worldwide catastrophe. I have to say, how, how happy would you be, though, to be in the room to hear what Sidney Powell is actually going to say uh, about this? The question is, will they get others to flip on him, right? And that's uh, Donald so. Trump has always been obsessed in particular. Right? That's why his, like, things about loyalty and rhinos, it's all about in this sort of right, New York way. mafia kind of analogy here, like, it's the, it's the flippers. It's, I think you know. the question is also whether, I mean, I keep wondering, is is she reality-based enough to be of use? Yeah, oh, um, that's because, interesting. Yeah, maybe. Right, you know, or her testimony be discredited by the mere wackiness of her perspective. Yeah. Like if she goes interstellar right away. And starts cracking cracking the (laughs) Kraken. Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Jane Mayer, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Susan Glasser. Hi, Evan. Hey, Susan. Hey, Jane. Great to be with you guys. On Wednesday, President Biden visited Tel Aviv, reiterating America's support for Israel amidst its war with Hamas. You're not alone. You are not alone. As long as the United States stands and we will stand forever, we'll not let you ever be alone. But in Israel, as well as in the war in Ukraine, Biden is walking a fine line. He's both supporting American allies while trying to limit the spread of these conflicts. As he told his audience in Tel Aviv, After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. I'm the first U.S. president to visit Israel in time of war. I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. There's always cost. Biden is also attempting to maintain another difficult balance of projecting moral clarity and stability to the world at a moment when America's own government is increasingly unstable. This has got the three of us thinking about Biden's foreign policy, how to define it, how it's shaping these crises abroad, and how it's affecting his political prospects back home. So let's start with Biden's trip to Israel this week. What were the goals of this trip? from the point of view of the Biden administration? And do you think they achieved them? Evan? Yeah, I think the primary mission, the objective, was to demonstrate American solidarity with Israel, frankly, after it had suffered the deadliest attack in half a century, and to solidify that relationship after what has been a very difficult year and and more than a year. I mean, there, there has because of Bibi Netanyahu's uh, effort to overhaul the judiciary in in Israel, it put a lot of distance between him and Biden. And uh, even by Biden's standards, they have a very long relationship. Goes back decades. It's intense. It's been often quite. Um, combative at times. And he wanted to go over there and make clear that on this issue, there is no daylight. And I think also this point that he made about overreaction was surprising and fascinating. Um, This idea of saying that the United States made mistakes after 9-11 and don't go down that road. That, That struck me. And then the last bit I'll mention is the humanitarian aid piece of it. 
you know, we can talk, and I think we will and should, about how much they were able to get out of this. But the idea that they have to have that as the other hand of America's involvement, uh, ensuring that there is some opportunity to look beyond the immediate military response to this attack is essential to this. Yeah, I I think that certainly... Biden's trip was, it was enormously welcomed in Israel at a moment of great, uh, not only just absolute terror. And I, I do think it's important to underscore for people just how much, you know, this analogy to 9-11, you know, add, add zeros to, you know, your numbers there when you think about that. Because it would be the equivalent in American terms of something like 45,000 Americans having died on that day. Uh, on a per capita exactly, basis. Exactly, exactly. So we're talking about a scale that touches so much of the country. Combine that with a mobilization of 360,000 Israelis in a small country of 10 million people. And you are talking about a, a sort of a cataclysmic trauma in the life of this nation. And so for Biden to show up, that that photograph, which I'm sure – Everyone has seen by this point of him embracing Bibi uh, is 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 very important. I think that even people who have been very critical of Biden in Israel as well as in the United States uh, have seen this as a very important moment. But and of course there is a but, right? It's not clear yet what really has been accomplished by this extraordinary amount of personal diplomacy. You might call it the bear hug strategy, right? This is literally physically hugging Israel and its prime minister close in order to be able to make the points about don't overreact as we did after 9-11, in order to make the point, what is your plan for the day after? Let's say you obliterate Hamas and burn it to the ground then what? What do you do? Right. You know, do you own it? I think that's a really important point about uh, this incredible round of personal diplomacy, but very, very uncertain outcomes. And Biden has made clear that his advisors said to him it's a risk. Um, and and some of them didn't want him to step into this or do this bear hug di- diplomacy. I, I mean, I think you have to think, you know, th- and there will be criticism. There's already criticism within his own party, of course, as many uh, liberals and progressives have, have been increasingly critical about the humanitarian disaster in, in Gaza. Um, but I think you also have to think, what were his alternatives? I mean, if he had stayed home as the, the American president, you know, and also, I mean, to be sort of crassly political about it. You have a you have someone who's running for president about whom the critique is that he's too old. Mm. He got on a plane, went over into a war zone in a risky place, um, was physically there and present and was fast to take action. All those things sort of help to make him look like an active participant and and leader. In the end, honestly, this is his home turf politically and personally and sort of temperamentally, meaning he knows these issues. Um, he's comfortable talking about the history of the Middle East. He can separate in his mind the terrorism of Hamas from the Palestinian cause. He can talk about Israel and, as he would say, his ironclad support of Israel, his belief that without Israel, Jews are not safe in the world. He's sort of able to do this without a with, – you see all of this – careful, self-conscious Republican attempts to try to pacify all these different parts of their very scattered electorate, I don't think he seems that he needs to do that. He is actually saying what he thinks 
is where he thinks yeah. the natural home of the Democratic Party is. I think that's exactly right, actually, Evan. And this is an example where Biden sort of, you know, relatively famous indifference to social media and, the you know, the critiques of left-wing Twitter. I don't think he cares. Honestly, uh, I don't think he is forget not only not a participant in the culture wars on American campuses, I just don't think that's his dialogue uh, right now. And Jane, you made an important point about their perception about what what is politically useful to them. It's not even so much any particular policy as much as a, a kind of an image of him as a statesman, as somebody whose experience matters. It's not coincidental that one of the very first campaign ads that his campaign team ran uh, looking ahead to 2024 was basically just video footage of his visit to a previous war zone to Kiev earlier this year in February, uh, just before the first anniversary of the Russian invasion, where he stood even with air raid sirens blaring and walked in the streets of Kiev with Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. That was a campaign ad as they saw it. Now, I will say it didn't move Joe Biden's numbers at all, right? So it, it, there's been there was no obvious bump for him after he made that trip to Kiev. I don't think there'll be maybe there'll be some modest, you know, kind of short-term political benefit, but it's more about the overall kind of perception that they're trying to create that this is our answer to the age criticism is that this is a moment when experience matters and also we can talk about it. Let's talk about it. It's an incredible juxtaposition right. with Donald Trump. Let's be real. He's made an ass of himself. I mean, just <laughs> a complete ass. He's called he's called Hezbollah very smart. Even. Yeah. He has uh, waged his personal uh, vendetta wait, against wait. BB yeah, Netanyahu. Ha- it's almost you have to pause for a second and recognize what you just said, how strange it is. You have the leading Republican yes. candidate for president praising, as he put it, the strategic uh, power and strength of Hezbollah. And the smarts. And the, that, was, that was his smart, word. He said. Well, so is word. Vladimir right, Putin and right. so is Xi Jinping. Right. I mean, it's very yeah. consistent because that's one team. And that, you know, talk about like, yeah. you know, intra-party warfare. I mean, there may be some progressives attacking and there are progressives attacking Biden for um being so close to Israel in this situation. But it's nothing compared to the opponents of Trump who piled on so fast when he distanced himself from Israel and criticized Netanyahu for not being prepared. Um, Chris Christie called him a fool. fool. Only a fool would make those kind of comments. Only a fool would give comments that could give aid and comfort to Israel's uh, adversary. Nikki Haley said, this is my case about why we need a new generation. And DeSantis came in and said, you can't rely on Trump. The minute he's off the teleprompter, he wanders and says the wrong things. And the suggestion was, of course, that he's 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 passed his prime. And, but and, for all and the good that it, it did them. I mean, yeah. I think it's important to note that this is yet another numbers, remarkable right. example where Trump seems to be immune from the cons- political consequences, at least within his own party, of his even biggest screw-ups and gaffes. Now, I think this is a—I mean, if, if there's ever a week where we need to put a pin in the subject of Donald Trump eventually, this is the week because we have tremendous number of things we need to talk about, like— Susan's terrific piece on Jake Sullivan. Uh, we have to talk about what this administration is doing. But now I will I will violate my own <laughs> suggestion here just to add one other bit on Trump. And then I think we do have to talk about the guy who's actually in the White House for the moment. But the, the, there's this other little bit. It's that, not irrelevant. I, okay. I get it's, it. It's, it's not, actually because totally, contrast I'm, I'm is you. in politics 
the only thing. It is, and Joe, and Joe Biden and will be the first the to tell you. But I'm just saying that I think there is a tremendous amount that has to be um, considered about what's actually to come rather than what's already happened. I, the, okay, the, but what's your Trump point? The one bit that I find irresistible uh, is this was in a kind of you know political story about how people are feeling about how political leaders are doing at this moment. And there was an AP story from up in New Hampshire where they interviewed somebody about Trump's reaction. She's a Republican who said, and this is the word that caught my attention, was she says, of Trump. She says, I'm not saying he wasn't a good president, but he's too immature. This is not the kind of leader we need in a time of war. And I think in that little idea is the kernel of a big political fact, which is that it's moments like this that actually clarify the incapacity of the Trump prospect. The political scene from The New Yorker will be back in just a moment. Hi, it's David Remnick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker, including Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P-O-D-15 for a 15% discount. I do want to just, and then we can move on, but I do want to add one more thing about Biden's um, performance here, which I think is really important, and that is that he has now set himself up to be someone who is a wise leader in a very rough region here, um, somebody who who has wisdom about how to resolve these issues. And it's a dangerous part of the world and a dangerous place for people to play politics. And I just think that at the very least, they've got to get this humanitarian aid moved in from Egypt up to the Gaza Strip because if he can't deliver on that, it, it'll it be a catastrophe. Well, and it, it, it will open him up even further to, you know, criticism around the world and deservedly but, so. Okay, so this is a really important point, Jane, and I'm glad you brought it up because there's a difference between sort of nailing the short-term optics of something like this, which I think probably most people, including most Republicans, would agree. Biden's really good. This this plays to his strengths as a as a person uh, with empathy. It plays his strength as a politician. But to your point, it's not yet clear a what he. Uh, or his Secretary of State Tony Blinken have achieved in 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 what, by all accounts, is absolutely you know indefatigable shuttle diplomacy. But they haven't even managed to get the Rafah crossing open between Israel and Gaza, which is really the only potential way that doesn't go through Israel. I can't underscore enough the general tone of bleakness I have heard from people who have been participating in these conversations, administration people who are extremely worried about what's going to happen next, not only because there doesn't seem to be a real plan for what Israel would do on the day after. That's sort of the shorthand now, the day after. What happens after you take out Hamas, uh, even assuming that you are able to do that? I, I asked someone just before this conversation who 
is familiar with these talks, who told me that senior, senior Israeli officials are talking about years, even a decade of war. This is something that we haven't seen. And so I think, in a way, people should discount a lot of our instant analysis about the politics of it, because I think it's really hard, as as we Americans learned all too painfully, going into Afghanistan, going into Iraq. Uh, you know, what starts out as a righteous cause uh, can end up 20 years later not in one. What starts out in a problematic way, the, the war in Iraq, can end up in a totally different place. Well, uh, I'm 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 concerned also not even 20 years down the pike. I'm thinking 24 hours because mm. it will be 13 days, um, almost 2 weeks well, the tomorrow. There're the hostages, but also I think while the world is watching, you have a modern democracy Israel that has cut off electricity, water and food yeah. from a population that's defenseless for the most part that's stuck there half of whom are children. That is just not something that is allowable under international law or the laws of war. So, I mean, it you know, the crisis is building even in the immediate. So, but you know, so Anthony Blinken Um, Secretary of State has been on a sort of tour of diplomacy through at least seven countries recently. How do you guys think he's doing? How do you think his message is coming across? You know, we can say that it was intense in uh, him conducting the kind of shuttle diplomacy that recalls sort of Henry Kissinger at the height of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. It recalls Jim Baker, who once had an epic uh, uh, nearly month-long trip around the Middle East uh, in the in the run-up to the first Gulf War. And yet the results of that are uh, absolutely TBD. And Jane, of course, one of the big things that he was talking with Arab leaders about was about provision of humanitarian aid inside uh, Gaza. And, and none of that has gone in yet. So obviously we can't count that as a victory yet for diplomacy in the sense that we don't know if it's going to happen or not. Number and it one. might happen tomorrow. I mean, the plan is that in theory it might to. happen on Friday. Right. So, um, right. But I think this is one of those moments that requires a bit of humility on the part of the reporting core to say we don't actually know yet what these visits are going to produce. And I think this is it's not an easy attribute for our business because we're being pressured to sort of render judgments right at the moment. Um, But we'll see. Yeah. But just to be clear, like the mood coming off of that that. plane is very, very grim. They're not saying like, well, privately, just wait and see. And we've negotiated like, you know, the the hostages coming out. Okay, this is a very, I also think that the reality, as Jane said, I mean, Jane's question was about what's the mood on the ground. The mood on the ground in the Middle East is very dark, too. I mean, the fact is that you see what the reaction has been in places like Bahrain, places like Oman that don't usually have big outbursts of public uh, protest. And they are, in fact, very critical of uh, what the United States has done. So this is an uphill road by any so, measure. So, okay, given that this is now the second war that the Biden administration is actively um, involved in, you could say, I mean, not on the ground, but in terms of support, what do you think we've learned about Biden foreign policy? I, I wanted to ask um, Susan in particular because of your wonderful piece about Jake Sullivan. Yeah. If there is such a thing, do you think as a Biden doctrine or a Biden approach to foreign policy that you can 
glean from these two wars? Well, one of the things is I, I learned this actually through hard experience in my uh, five years as the editor of Foreign Policy magazine, which is uh, beware uh, people bearing doctrines because usually they're <laughs> right. outdated or uh, inoperative within moments of their declaration. So first of all, I think it's remarkable and it tells you about the problem of the moment very clearly that here we are 20 or whatever minutes into this conversation, and we have not even mentioned the war in Ukraine, Mm. uh, which is the largest land war in Europe since the end of World War II. In many ways, right, this has been the defining foreign policy uh, kind of challenge and also response of the, the Biden presidency. And that is actually also coming to a head right here in Washington right now with the crisis on Capitol Hill. The funding for this has run out. The administration asked for $24 billion this summer. Congress hasn't acted on it. And then in the meantime, the U.S. House of Representatives has experienced this complete meltdown. And so you asked about, you know, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. You know, he and Biden have been walking essentially a tightrope. They have been in a way, offering enormous sweeping rhetorical commitment to Ukraine, talking about this as a defining conflict of democracies versus autocracies. Jake said to me, it's the most clear-cut case of the good guys versus the bad guys since World War II, or at least since the end of the Cold War. And He compared it to Rocky and well, Red Dawn. And, and Red yeah. Dawn, of course, he, you know, child of the 80s, he said, we, you know which side you have to be on. Well, we're on the side of the good guy here, and you have to do a lot for the good guy. But the world doesn't trust us. And I think that fundamentally is is something that the Chinese are going to be watching. It's not a mistake that while Joe Biden was bear-hugging Bibi Netanyahu this week uh, in Beijing, Vladimir Putin was there in person with Xi Jinping. And that just tells you, you know, the world is this democracies versus autocracies language of Joe Biden is, we're seeing it made manifest. Evan, I mean, you've just finished a tremendous piece on China. How, How do you think the Biden administration regards this no limits relationship that seems to be growing between well, uh, China and Russia. I could tell you one thing, which is I think that the Chinese look across the Pacific at the dysfunction in Washington, and their dominant reaction is, are we really struggling to compete with these guys? Uh-huh. <laughs> and yet, uh, the fact is, I mean, there is it was it was astonishing to see Vladimir Putin get the red carpet treatment. It's not a cliche. It was literally what he got when he got to Beijing. This is a man who can barely leave his own country because he's, of course, facing an arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court. And he goes to Beijing and he's the guest of honor at their big event. This is the Belt and Road Forum initiative. And... Xi Jinping has called him his best and closest friend. And I think on one level, the Biden administration looks at this and says, this is deeply worrying because this is a partnership that is organized essentially around ideology and the commitment to creating an alternative set of values and structures that would ultimately undermine the United States. And at the same time, I will tell you, though, I think that there is a feeling that when they look at what China and Russia are doing, that these are two countries that are at the moment uh, not 
gaining ground. They are they do not have the wind at their back. If you look at the size of this event in Beijing, it's a really interesting set of photographs that are circulating in the sort of China analysis crowd. That the first year that they had this Belt and Road thing back in 2017, they had this huge group of dozens of foreign heads of state. And then each year, every time they did this, it would shrink. And then this year, it was a relatively small group. And this is, I think, you know, this is a counterintuitive but emerging realization within the usual, you know, China's going to take over the world narrative, that actually uh, China is, at this moment, much weaker on some measures than we sometimes assume. Well, well mean, you know, the, the Russia crowd is also, right, okay, it's a strategic disaster for Putin, his war in Ukraine, he doesn't have allies. But it's also, it's been a time for choosing. And what you have seen is the emergence of a real axis between not only Russia and China, but Iran, which has uh, stepped up in its role as a supplier both of uh, oil and gas energy to China, but also as a supplier of weapons to Russia, North Korea, again, actually delivering artillery to Russia just this past week. And so uh, longstanding ties, one should note, not only between Iran and its proxy Hamas and Hezbollah, but also between Russia and Syria and Hamas. And so, you know, it's it's a time for choosing. It's a division of the world in a way that they don't have the numbers on their side. But what's been remarkable, unfortunately, is uh, their ability to continue to defy, for example, U.S. sanctions that have been placed on Russia while they have uh, redoubled their, their business partnership with China is more important than it's ever been. I would just say, I mean, sort of counterintuitively, okay, in the in the midst of this growing alliance with these autocratic countries, um, America, by contrast, looks like it's in complete disarray. You've got the former president facing criminal trials. You've got the, uh, no Speaker of the House um, in Congress. But at the same time, we have a, a mess. It may look like a mess, but it is a democracy where there are rules. And when people break right. rules, they face consequences. Yeah. And, um, and it's being worked out. And we don't in this country, at least, it may look cleaner over in China, but they have how many hundreds of thousands of people or tens of thousands of people who are political prisoners? And so, um, but let, let's you know. be—I I do think we got to pull back though and say that the prospect of a long-term war, even if it doesn't last another decade in the Middle East, the prospect of Israel, our key strategic partner in the region, no longer even talking to uh, many of uh, the other American partners in the region. There's a perception as a, a, a global leader of democracies, if you will, that not only do we not have our act together, but that in fact we are incapable of sustaining the long-term commitment that would be required to play a role of global leadership. Well, our inability to pass basic funding bills because our House of Representatives isn't open, so we can't keep funding the war against Russia and Ukraine that we've been funding for the last year and a half because that was going to be our existential thing. We're leaving the Middle East. Now we're back in the Middle East. We're pivoting to Asia. Now we're not pivoting to Asia. I, I think that we have to be like able to say uh, that this Hamas terrorist attack was not just an attack on Israel, but it was actually a very successful attack on the United States' interests, uh, not only in the Middle East, but but geopolitically. Uh, and it has presented, I think, by sort of ripping the veil off of you know certain illusions that were convenient for us all to buy into, it is unfortunately 
it's it's reset us in perhaps a more more honest place but it's 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 this is really a, a very big challenge for how America saw its um, next decade or so of strategic uh, so competition. So, Evan, I turn to you for a moment of optimism <laughs> as Susan. <laughs> it has been well, a horrible week, and I have to say this is the kind of week where it's hard to say Susan's not right. Um, <laughs> I, I have to say on this, uh, but, I, I, am, I think Susan makes a, a, an essential point about this being a time of choosing. And I think actually in some ways this war – uh, now 12 days in, has already had a clarifying effect because um, uh, remarkably, you've seen China come out and speak more positively about uh, the Palestinian cause than historically they would have. They would have, you know, five, 10 years ago, they would have said, we don't want to get involved in this kind of yeah. uh, internal issue. Now they are actually making a claim to try to be essentially the voice of the global South, of the developing world, or even more broadly speaking, the sort of non-Western aligned nations. And it's a vast, and and I would point out, and this is actually, it sounds like a subtle distinction, but it's an important one. Jane, you mentioned an alliance between Russians and the Chinese. They don't have an alliance. And part of the reason they don't have an alliance is because they don't trust each other enough to have an alliance. I mean, just the other day, Vladimir Putin is meeting with Kim Jong-un from North Korea precisely because he wants to counterbalance the fact that he is now in hock to the Chinese as dramatically as he is. So, you know, on one hand, they are all clasping hands and they're saying we're so together on this. But you have to remember that when your alliance or your, shall we say, your relationship is rooted in nothing else except opposition to the Western-led order, um, that is a very fragile and uh, fractious arrangement. So I think you know, to bring it way back to where we started, Joe Biden's you know vision of what the United States is facing right now is at home. It's facing a struggle over the survival and future of democracy, and it is facing a struggle out in the world for the survival and um, validity of democracy. And I think the events of the last two weeks underscore that. Yeah. All and right. I just I just I do reject the idea that this is a this is not the kind of thing that we can just put into its optimist or pessimistic. I mean, the bottom line is we're talking about uh, a long term loss of life of Israelis and Palestinians in a way that has ripped away kind of one of the, the foundations of American kind of strategic thinking for for really the last 10 years, going back through Obama, Trump, and Biden, all three of them had a, a core notion uh, that I think has been pretty comprehensively kind of blown up here, which is this idea that um, we could just pivot our attention away from the Middle East, that our own energy independence combined with our fears about a long-term competition with China, that we could just sort of turn the spigot of our leadership on and off. We could ignore the unpleasant facts about Israel and its occupation of the Palestinian lands because it suited us to do that. And, you know, it's the consequences of the collapse of that kind of strategic thinking that we've had from the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations. They've had different ways of expressing it. Like, that's kind of collapsed here, you know? It is, it's not likely to be resurrected anytime soon. And, and of course, thousands and thousands of people are going to pay for the collapse of that in a horrible war. So listen, it's Thursday now. Biden is due to give a big speech tonight. And, um, you know, what do we expect? What, what's going to come out of this? 
Well, one of the surprises to me, at least, has been that um, I would not have expected to be saying this, but Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, the Republican leader in the Senate, has actually signaled some support for the administration's idea, which is to say, look, let's tie together a lot of the challenges we're talking about into some sort of funding bill so that there's money for Ukraine, money for Israel, money even for Taiwan. So that may become a basis for the next step in what is going to be a very long road. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Uh, that in a way, the funding for the war in Ukraine, which was very much in jeopardy because of the meltdown of the House Republicans, that in the short term, at least, there are the prospects now for passage of uh, a, this broader $100 billion bill, which would have funding for Ukraine throughout the 2024 election season. I think a lot of people, Mitch McConnell, by the way, has been very supportive in a way of the Biden administration when it comes to its backing for Ukraine and now for Israel. And so I think you'll see that alliance between the Biden White House and the Senate Republicans, as well as Senate Democrats, being kind of the driving factor. But of course, it all comes back to this big question of, you know, can America be a superpower in the world when we don't even have a Speaker of the House? Well, on that note... A suitably ominous note, I suppose. <laughs> I think that's a, a, a stay, ta- it's a stay <laughs> tuned moment. So um, lots is up in the air. Can't wait to see you all next week. Um, we'll be here. Oh, I'm exhausted by just <laughs> contemplating this, but I'm glad we'll get to talk about it. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Jane Mayer. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. We'll be back next week. Enjoy your weekends, and thanks for listening. <laughs>